Hey, I'm Brian Hyatt, and this is Rolling Stone Music Now. So a whole new generation is being reintroduced to one of the most important bands in the history of music, the Sex Pistols. Thanks to what I think is a really fun new show on Hulu, a six-part show called Pistol that tells their whole story with a really talented and super young cast of actors. The band was, of course, frontman Johnny Rotten, guitarist Steve Jones, drummer Paul Cook, and at first, bassist Glenn Matlock, who parted ways with the band and was replaced by a very charismatic dude who really couldn't play at all, Sid Vicious. And soon after, the band fell apart, having released one album. Never mind the Bullocks, here's the Sex Pistols, which does get a lot more done in the course of 11 songs than most bands manage in their entire career. The Hulu show is based on the book Lonely Boy, Tales from a Sex Pistol by Steve Jones, that band's guitarist, and it happens to be one of the most hilariously and painfully honest rock memoirs I've ever read. Steve Jones himself is joining us for this episode to talk about the history of the Sex Pistols, the new show, and a lot more. And by the way, Johnny Rotten, a.k.a. John Lydon, was not down with the idea of the show, tried to sue them to stop the use of the Sex Pistols' music in it. That failed, but Steve talks about that as well. We also talk about the incredibly prominent role given to Chrissy Hind, the founder of The Pretenders, who... Definitely hung around the Sex Pistols, but was made a main character of this show, which even Chrissy was a bit surprised by. It's a really fun conversation. Let's jump right into it. How's it been emotionally for you to have it all out there again in this new form? It's actually a relief now that it's actually finished and it's out there for the world to see. It was more emotional when it was being made. There was some challenging times, especially with John Lydon not wanting us to use the music. So once we got that sorted out, it was a lot better. But it's great. I love it that this is out and I love the show. I think everybody did an amazing job. Danny Boyle is a genius. Craig Pierce wrote the script. It's, it's brilliant. I'm really happy with it. It got some mixed reviews. After I watched it, I thought they were legitimately crazy. <laughs> I don't know what you're talking about. I thought this is great. Yeah, uh, I know. I, I know. I don't, I don't get it. But you put it out there, and whether people like it or not is, is up to them. You can't make people like it, or you can't make people dislike it. I think it's a perfect time capsule. What the hell would you have done if Lydon had won, if John had won the lawsuit? What could you have possibly done? It almost would have stopped the whole show that was already well into production, I guess. Yeah, I mean, I didn't think we was going to lose. You you never know, though. There's always that freak of nature that could happen. But we knew, we all knew that we signed the majority rules agreement, and Mr. Cook did. And uh, it's on paper, you know. So, but it was it was still having to deal with all that cool case. It's just, just a waste of time, man. One last Sex Pistols mess, I guess. I think there's always going to be Sex Pistols mess. <laughs> it's just the nature of this band. Was there any contingency plan if the music had gotten blocked? I, I don't know what we would have done. I mean, there's nothing yeah. worse than seeing documentaries or TV shows and they're like cheap and they ain't got the band's music in it. It's like the worst thing ever. Like that Jimi <laughs> Hendrix one with Andre 3000. I mean, it's just the worst. It would just end up being just, you know, I'm not your stepping stone and substitute and stuff, but no original. It would have been very, very bizarre. Over um, and over again. That's right.
part of you I know must be so sick of the Sex Pistols and of those years of your life. And at the same time, maybe not sick of it. How do you kind of see that at this point? Well, yes, I'm just definitely um, over the one album that we did, you know, and I, 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 you know, I hear it now and again and I love it. It's a brilliant album, but do I sit around listening to myself? No, I like a lot of other stuff. I don't really listen to punk music, you know, to be honest with you, it's just, uh, I, I found that I've changed over the years from when I was, you know, a kid, 19, 20, I'm totally different. I used to hate Steely Dan, now I love Steely Dan. I also became a huge Steely Dan fan later in life. But what's your favorite music by them? Well, there's, there's like seven or eight albums. And there's always, the good thing about Steely Dan, there's always a few gems on each album. And I just like the musicianship and, and, and the, sonically the way they recorded. And he writes good lyrics, that guy. They're not, they're not lame lyrics. They're very good lyrics. I like Pearl of the Quarter. That's one of my favorite. Yeah, I mean, there's, there's loads, there's loads. I, I just like listening to the albums when I'm driving around. They're just great. Kid Charmaine. I could never play that stuff, by the way, just so you know. I, I don't sit along trying to learn it. Did you ever try to learn all the Beatle chords and jazz chords that were beyond you in the old days? Never. I, I wouldn't know where to start. I mean, literally, I was Mr. Barkle. That, that's all you got, and a bit of Chuck Berry, that was it. Because when you play the Chuck Berry lead, it kind of... You know, the, the ass don't drop out of it when all of a sudden you're playing lead. Chuck Berry lead is almost rhythmic and it's three strings, you know. So you're kind of still playing a rhythmic thing when you're only a three piece, you know, to keep it still pumping. As opposed to an Eric Clapton single note thing where the whole band drops out when you do it. It's terrible. I had a funny story. <laughs> I actually talk about it in my book. When I was a heroin addict in London, I used to notice one dealer... And I used to go around, in England, you used to go around people's houses. You didn't get dope off the street back then. I know it's a lot completely different then. But so I used to go around this old hippie's house and he would literally, uh, I didn't have any money. So I was kind of scrounging, waiting, waiting around for a sniff or, or whatever. And, and this guy totally played me. He would have me sit there, invite his friends over to impress them that he's got Steve Jones out the Sex Pistols around his house and to boot he would play Steely Dan records and I'd have to sit through and make out I liked them. He tortured me this guy. I feel like there's two myths about the Sex Pistols that are totally wrong. The first is that Malcolm McLaren was the puppeteer who put the group together like a boy band and was in full control and it's not True, and it must still drive you crazy that that's what people perceive. Some people. It, we've never, never f thought of ourselves as a boy band. You're absolutely right. It's not true. But he was, Even Mal Malcolm was a fifth member. He was very important to the Sex Pistols. I don't care what anyone says. He was a big force. He was a perfect Swengali bullshit artist manager, you know, a real chancer. And he, he had some he had some great ideas, you know, he really did. But as a boy band, I, to me, that's just like a, a joke, you know, that, but that people it, actually would say that about us. They obviously don't know the history. The idea that you were put together isn't 
really quite right either. You you and, and Cookie were always together. There were different members of the band. I guess it is true, right, that Malcolm, you needed a good bass player, and Malcolm did suggest Glenn, right? So that's true. Because he worked in the shop. Let me right. tell you, the shop, uh, Let It Rock, Sex, that was like the hate Ashbury of punk. Right. That's where everyone used to congregate, anyone who was anyone... All kinds of deviants. That was the that was the meeting place, Kings Road, World's End. That was that was the spot. So, any you know anything that happened always happened in that shop or around that area. As depicted in the show and as you talk about in the book, Malcolm did suggest John Lydon, but is it really true that he actually meant Sid Vicious and it, the, the guy who became Sid Vicious and was confused? It was basically a, a pure accident that Lydon came in. He got Suppo- his John's confused. Supposedly, I I never heard of that, but mm. I didn't I didn't have to be in every conversation that ever happened. I wasn't with everyone twenty four hours a day, you know. In the show, it put, Vivian she says she's found a singer, and his name was John, and that was Sid. And McLaren found a singer, and his name was John, and it was John Lydon. You know, put it this way: if if we were to pick Sid, we wouldn't be having this conversation. You know, there would be no, there would be no Sex Pistols the way it was. John absolutely was the right pick. He wrote the words. He he was sharp as sharp, and very insightful. And the look, the whole bit. You know, Sid was great just being on there, but he could never have have, have wrote words like John did. I mean, John Lydon actually comes off, I would argue, quite well in the show probably a bit better than he does in your book. <laughs> There's a lot of humanizing moments for him. There's a moment when he's the one who objects to a swastika shirt. He's on the side of the working man. There's a lot of humanizing moments of him. Was that something you wanted to show that softer, <laughs> whatever is close to a softer side of John Lydon? I think it's pretty accurate. He did have a good side to him like that. And um, I think it's good to see that as opposed to just the crash bang wallop spitting and all the rest of it because that ain't everything you know that ain't everything that you see what everyone everyone sees i think it's good to tap into that and uh, you're absolutely right john comes out great in the show and and rightly so you know how long did it take in reality before in the band before he was really getting on your nerves there always was a bit of tension i would say the early days before you're known always the best days you ask any band they'll always say before they become successful when success comes into it people change me included it all it all kind of changes and that's when it doesn't that's when it's not fun it's not that it can't be fun it's just that you don't know how the individuals in the band are going to react to success and sometimes it, it seems like some bands seem to exist okay like that but for us, being as young as we was, I think it was a bit too much all to handle. I think you said in the book that the thing with John is that he was always on. It wasn't like hanging out with the guys from The Clash who were relaxed and you could relax with. That I guess John was always sort of in character. Yeah, I mean, you could have a great one-on-one with John. But as soon as someone else comes into the room, he goes into... Johnny Rotten. He wrote about you. He can be hilarious, but he doesn't like another comedian in the room. 
he's forever trying to get away from being asked a question, very noncommittal, slightly judgmental, and difficult to get close to. We've had our moments where we've been very close and had a great laugh, me and Steve, but he would swing right back into that alienation thing in a heartbeat. If he had just bothered to open his heart, we could have helped each other along there quite brilliantly, but it wasn't in him. I mean, I, I get it, but I could say exactly the same thing about John. Right. You know what I mean? So it could be right. He could be onto something. You know, I, I didn't have a clue when I was 19, 20 how to, how to and I, I probably was shut down at that point. I, I'm not now, but then he, he could be absolutely right. I, I don't know. In the show, they have a scene where you learn to play guitar from scratch in five days with the help of some speed. And that is not close to accurate, but you did learn guitar pretty quickly and speed was a huge part of it, right? For sure. Absolutely. 100%. Um, I used to go to this doctor. His name was Dr. Kale down Harley Street. He was, he was, a, he was a quack. I mean, all these models and anyone who was anyone used to go to this guy and get a, a so-called uh, diet plan where he, would, where he would give you black beauties and then these pills called Mandrix to sleep at night. And everyone went to him. I mean, I used to go to this guy's office and he'd be asleep on his desk with his head on the desk. But it was brilliant. You know, uh, Black Beauties definitely gave me that um, attention. You know, I could focus because I couldn't focus. I never focused on school. I didn't learn a thing at school. But that kind of zoomed me in. It was a perfect drug for me to learn to play guitar. I don't endorse it to other kids who are out there thinking, how do I learn to play guitar? But that's the way I did it. It paid off, you know. And I did, uh, I wouldn't say I learned to play in five days, but I definitely learned to play a lot quicker if I was doing it uh, on the natch. And was it trying to replicate Stooges riffs? What was your actual practice? What did it consist of? I had a little record player. I didn't know what chords were. I may have known what an A was and, and like a bar call and I would just move my fingers up and down and I would put on Stooges, New York Dolls, The Faces, uh, stuff like that and uh, literally just play along. I don't even know if if I was in tune, like properly, like you know, like I don't know, but it worked. You and Glenn Matlock have always had a bit of difference over the extent of his contributions to the songwriting. This is how I translate what both of you were saying. He would come up in some cases with versions of songs, and then what you would do would be make them into Sex Pistols songs, which was a huge part of that process. He would play things that were way too complex and not hard-hitting enough for this band, and you would find ways to make them fit. Is And then, of course, there were other things that you just wrote on your own. Tell me if that's wrong. Yeah, Glenn would have the Beatle chords, and, you know, good, great ideas. Pretty Vacant was a great riff. Anarchy, God Save the Queen, you know, really great, but it had to have something more than just some uh, fiddly chords, you know. Plus, I didn't like fiddly chords, 
But probably the real reason is I couldn't play fiddly chords. So it all kind of worked out. Yes, Glenn definitely had them tunes, but you've got to remember, he didn't write the words. John wrote the words, so it's, it's, it's co-written. It's not like Lennon and McCartney. It's not just Lennon or McCartney, it's the two of them. Hence, when Glenn left the band, I had to write, someone else had to have some songs, you know, and I, and I wrote the music to No Feelings, Holidays in the Sun, Bodies, Scene, EMI. So not only did I, I've only been playing guitar a little bit, I always had to come up with some tunes for John to write words to, you know, so I think it was pretty, it was pretty good. Well, first of all, you know, Glenn sometimes tries to act like he was, he actually sort of quit, which doesn't, isn't the way it's portrayed in your book or the show or a lot of people's accounts. Is he okay with the way it's portrayed in the show, to your knowledge? I think it's a gray area, that, that whole thing. Um, He says he quit, um, but I don't know if that's, 100% 100% accurate. I think there was a bit of both, to be honest with you. I don't think he wanted to quit, but um, he, will a, te- he will tell you that he, he did. On a gut level, did part of you realize, I, I mean, part of you must have realized that getting a replacement who literally could not play bass, who had to be taught how to play the basics of bass, but looked great, you must have known from the start that that probably wasn't a good idea, no? Um... It was the last thing I wanted to be doing was showing Sid where to put his fingers. You know, I mean, at this point, you know, we're 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 ha- we're a household name at this point from the Bill Grundy show, and uh, there was just so much going on, and I had to give Sid a crash course, and he he actually, God bless him, he did try. In, in the early stages, he had his bass up at a normal level where, where he could actually play, try and play. And I think you see him in the God Save the Queen video, where obviously we're miming, but you can see where his bass is and you can see that he's, he's trying to give it a go, you know, like trying to give it... But then that soon went out the window and, and then it just got it just got worse and he's literally like playing power chords on a bass, you know, which is just ridiculous. Um, So, yeah, it was all part of the beginning of the end. You know, after the Grundy show, it all started slowly deteriorating. But but Sid was, was great. I mean, the two of them together on an image level, you couldn't beat it, Sid and John. I mean, it was the perfect. You know, they look great. And, and you're still mad that you couldn't spike your hair, huh? Oh, man. I, I, sometimes I look at pictures, I'm like, look at that guy. What does he look like? Italian hairdresser, Mr. <laughs> Buffon. It seems like it was a real point of pain for you. That you just No matter what you could do, it, it just would not spike, right? I, I, spike, forget it. I couldn't even, it was just too thick. You know, I should have just went all out and just had a throw. You know, it, 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 it's good in a way when you're thinking back at it. It would have been ridiculous if we would have all had spiky hair. So it is what it is. But it, I mean, it started with me way before the Sex Pistols. I wanted my hair like Rod Stewart. Right. Spiky. And I couldn't do it then. And I would look, put like a gallon of Aquanet on my hair just to get a little bit of spike in the middle. I mean, you could, my head, if you touched it, it would be like touching a helmet. 
it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. What's up, everyone? It's Reality Steve, your number one source for all things Bachelor Nation and reality TV. Every day, I'm giving you the behind the scenes juice and your info on all your Bachelor Nation stories and also interviewing some of your favorite reality stars. My name has been synonymous with spoilers, but I'm so much more than that. Give me a listen. The Reality Steve Podcast, part of the Believe Network. Just search B-L-E-A-V on YouTube or wherever you listen. When you famously cursed out Grundy on that show, do you obviously you were drunk and having a good time? Do you remember what your state of mind was when he basically he had for people who don't remember he he basically hit on Susie from Susie and the Banshees, and you said you dirty sod, you dirty old man, and he told you to keep going, and then you said you dirty bastard, and he said go on again, and you said you dirty fucker. What a fucking rider on live television. And at the time, that was like the most cataclysmic thing that had ever happened. Do you remember your frame of mind when you said fuck on live television back then? It did bother me. I didn't even realize what was going on. I, fig- I figured that that ain't going to go out live. You know, I- I've heard of, you know, a delay button. So it wasn't, it was just, a, it was a natural act. It, I wasn't even trying to be shocking. I was just giving this guy, he obviously did want us there, this guy. It was obvious from, from the beginning that this guy was there just to try and make fools of us. Like a lot of interviewers did back in the day. Even when they used to interview the Beatles, they would, right. try, they would try to do sarky little stuff like that. And, and this guy was no different. That was just the MO back then. On the album itself, other than Anarchy, you play all the guitars and all the bass as well. I think a lot of people don't realize that. I guess I guess you can hear Sid playing an extra bass on bodies, right? An out-of-tune bass. He's on bodies, and I think he could be on God Save the Queen, too. But... Anytime he was on, you'd make sure you played two so there was an actual good bass track. Was that the deal? I believe so. Again, um, I'm not sure. And you recorded the guitar first, guitar and drums first. Yeah. And then you laid down the bass. Were you just playing root notes on the bass to match exactly what the chords you were playing? Was it as simple as that? Pretty much. Pretty much. A couple of little licks here and there, you know, with Chris Thomas. You know, I trusted him. It just seemed to work. You know, I might have doubted myself if I was producing it, but with having Chris Thomas there and Bill Price and him saying, yeah, it's great, Steve. That's it, just do that. And I did that and it, and it seemed to work. You had progressed incredibly fast at the guitar. I think it might have been fair to say in your early gigs that you were still learning, but you kind of learned on stage, right? You got much better really fast, I think. I think so. Um, I, I'd stopped doing speed at this point. When we, when we started doing gigs, that the speed was really only early on. I didn't really like the feeling of speed, to be honest with you, but I knew it was a means to an end. And, and when we went on the road, early shows, I'd have a beer and that just to try and uh, not be so nervous. But I don't remember doing speed or blow 
or anything else. It was just, just beer. Do you remember when you first heard or read John's lyrics to Anarchy in the UK, when you first got a sense of, of where he was going with them? I am an anti-coast. I am an anarchist. Don't know what I want. I've got to tell you, I, I mean, I was pretty illiterate back then. Right, you've said and, almost literally, yeah. Yeah, yeah and... I'm, I'm not proud of it, but that's just the way it was. And I never listened to lyrics. I mean, I knew it was he's, he's on about something, you know, <laughs> but, 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 to, but to me it was all just great, whatever it is, you know. The music was what I used to get drawn to with any, any bands, even if it was pop songs. It was the catchiness that drew me in or the chorus. I really didn't listen to, like, like if you were to play, if I don't listen to Bob Dylan songs, I wouldn't have a clue what he was singing about, you know, because it was too it was too intelligent for me. So, to to be totally honest, did you know what the word anarchy meant when I didn't. he was singing it at that time? You did not. No. And you didn't really care either way, did you? Not really. No. <laughs> I mean, that's yeah. John just said that he no longer believes in anarchy; that he's against anarchy. Did you see that? No, I didn't. Where, where did he say that? He, he wrote a thing for I guess because he's been doing some talking for the Jubilee. He also said that he. He actually kind of likes the Queen. I don't know if you saw that. No, I didn't. So first he said, uh, anarchy is a terrible idea. I'm not an anarchist. Uh, and he can't believe they're still anarchists. And he said, I've got to tell you the world this. Everyone presumes that I'm against the royal family as human beings. I'm not. I'm actually really proud of the Queen for surviving and doing so well. I applaud her for that. And that's a fantastic achievement. Well, I think if I had her money, I'd probably live to 99 too. Yes, it's, uh, I think she's been well cared for. What, does that surprise you for John to be talking that way? No, not really. You know, he's older too, you know. We, we get older, you change. I think it's all part of life. I mean, I, f I think it'd be silly if you had the same thinking that you did when you was 19, when you're a kid and you don't know shit, to when you're older. One changes, e even if some people find it hard to change. Everyone must have a different view, surely. You actually enjoyed recording the album, the guitars and all that. That was that was fun for you, I think. That was my favourite time of being in the Sex Pistols, was making Nevermind the Bollocks, without a doubt, was my favourite time. The irony is that you and Cook created, you know, other than the vocals, basically created the sound of that record. And despite the mythology that you couldn't play, were then in demand as session players for years afterwards based on that album, which is, the, the irony is interesting. Yeah. Well, I wouldn't say session players. I can't read music. You know, we got hired for certain kind of style, you know, but I, I wasn't getting calls. I wasn't dry, driving around in my 911 doing, um, you know, uh, you know, like sessions like five times a day, pop into one studio to the next, like proper session players. No, you know, I love working with Iggy Pop. That was great. I, I, that was a real good time for me. I'd gotten straight, gotten sober around 84, 85. Worked with Andy Taylor. I did an album with him, then Iggy, and then I did a couple of solo records. You know, I played with Bob Dylan, actually, and, and that was a weird session. But other than that, you know, the, the, the odd... You know, someone hired me if they wanted a bit of Chuck Berry, basically, and a bit of Jun 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 Jun, and that's it. <laughs> I wouldn't say a session player. The jin 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 jin, the eighth notes, the chugging eighth notes were so key to the style. People have been doing it forever now. 
you were doing it. Johnny Ramone was doing his version of it in a parallel way. You know, you guys, it was like a parallel development at the same time in two separate places. I guess you hear that in in, in certain Hawkwind songs has that. Where were, what was your inspiration for that chugging eighth note thing as far as downstrokes on the on the power chord? Where, where did that come from in your mind? Um, I don't know. I mean, it just... It was it was like a, an instinct to keep the ball moving, to have a driving feeling. I don't like it when there was holes in songs, and when you're playing and there's holes, you know. Power chords and you're golden if you can just keep that going in every song, and it just seemed that's what I needed to play to make it feel full and whole. Johnny Ramone, he, he didn't dampen much. It was just like, it was just open all the time. Fast, but he, he never kind of brought it down with the gin gin jeans. It was just all out, like, no, no, there was no dampening. If only you got a royalty for every time someone, you know, cranked up a Les Paul and did a chugging uh, eighth note power chord on the, uh, on the guitar, I guess, for all these years. I'm sure, I'm sure, um, I'm sure Chuck Berry says the same thing. I mean, Chrissy Hind, you guys had a sexual relationship briefly in real life. She also was, she knew the band. She knew, she hung around John. She even knew Sid a bit. She was around, but obviously her, her role in the show is to what, in your mind, how exaggerated is the role in the show? Well, she was, you know, again, she was, she was at the Hey Ashbury of Punk. She used to work in the shop every now and again uh, early on. Yes, it's a little uh, love interest as far as the show goes, which is always a good thing. And I don't mind a bit of uh, showbiz, you know, makes it more interesting. It's not a documentary. And uh, when she watched it, she watched it around Cookie's house and uh, she watched three episodes and she said, I got to go and take a dog somewhere. But then she came back and watched the rest. She was shocked how, how much she was in it. She couldn't believe it. Listen, she still is a very unique Chrissy. I think the real Chrissy is a little harder than the one that was in the show. Mm. A little more, little more uh, harder. You know, she had she had quite the uh, upbringing and and stuff that happened to her through her life. You know, I, I didn't realize it at the time, but what, what a great songwriter, too, and a, and a great voice. She always used to say, and this is from Chris Thomas, too, who produced a lot of, their, lot of the Pretenders albums, that she did, hated her voice. She couldn't sing in the studio if there was anybody in there other than Chris Thomas and the engineer. She was so insecure about her voice. And she would tell you that this is not, this is not a secret. There's nothing yeah. wrong, there's nothing wrong with showbiz in it a bit. You know, it's not, like I said, it's not a documentary. Right. You gotta, you gotta make it interesting, man. Otherwise it would just be a bore if everything's Absolutely. just like detailed. Absolutely. And what, did she want to literally join the Pistols and join the Clash? Did was that and, and was excluded because it wasn't even considered because she's a woman, or was that showbiz? No, no. it just it just it, we would wouldn't even think about having a woman in the Sex Pistols. Mm. It just would not 
you know, or anything. You know, my soul, my my purpose was Chrissy. Most of it was literally just sexual. I wasn't interested in her being a musician. I was just a savage. I just wanted to fuck everything that moved. Right. You know, it wasn't. It wasn't. She wasn't the only one I was stopping at the time. Put it that way. Right. Right. That's the. I, I got that. Was Was Johnny Rotten's weird thing about sex isn't important? Sex is just squelching noises. Was that all a pose, or was that his real position? I don't know. I don't know. I think <laughs> I, I, I have no idea about that. And I, I know. I I know. I used to get up to. You know. Uh, sex was a big thing for me back then. I have no idea what what John's deal is. Now, I want I think one of the things this shows got really accurate is John's first quote unquote audition when he's standing in front of the jukebox singing singing along to Alice Cooper. Although I think that wasn't the only song he sang along with in real life. Were you convinced by that that this was the guy? No, I, I thought he was just taking the piss. Yeah, you know, and, and he wasn't serious. But then again, I was coming from a different place. I didn't see his genius at the time. I just thought, who is this clown? Why ain't he trying to get this gig by singing along to the song? But he absolutely did the correct thing. You know, from the beginning, that was that was his thing. And I think just as you became better, he got better. He was, I think, at, at first, could he sing? Was was he a lot worse at first? Was it kind of questionable whether he could sing at all? Well, he did. He did. He did freak out when he heard himself when we opened up for right. uh, Eddie and the Hot Rocks. I think it's kind of tapped on a little bit in the show where he first heard himself on monitors. He freaked out and, and kicked the monitor into the into the audience because prior to that, it, all the gigs we did, it was just gear that I had stolen, these two cabinets with like a little amp and we'd stick microphones in it. There was no monitors. So, yeah. And he really did take singing lessons. No, he did. He did. Tona Labrette. I actually had a singing lesson with her too. That was her name up in um, Hampstead. I think some of it is in the the rock and roll swindle. (laughs) There is going to be a 50th anniversary coming up but depending on when you count it from there will be a 50th anniversary what would it take for one more reunion and i given everything that's happened and given everything even even with the latest lawsuit and everything well seeing that abba can now do it uh with not actually being there i'd be i'd be down really yeah you know yeah. doing that thing or well, maybe it's not here yet in england they do that what is it you know, it's like you're, they're, not, they're there, but they're not really there. Oh, um, is it like a hologram thing? Yes, is that what it is? Yes, yeah. yes, yeah. I'm down for that all day long. So you're willing to do a, a, a hologram concert, which is, let's see how they do it. They don't actually physically go out. That's an option. <laughs> it's an option. That's, all right, but how about how about a real, are, are you up, if you could somehow get every, I mean, the irony is the four original members are alive. Seriously, how would you rank the chances of one more tour? Um, you'd never know, man. You never know. I mean, uh, and we all have our hair too. That's another thing, another plus. <laughs> it's true. It makes a difference. Uh, um, I don't know. I mean, if I was absolutely broke, I'd probably consider it. Hmm. I'm not hearing like a ton of enthusiasm. And you haven't talked to Leiden since the lawsuit, or not in years. I haven't. I didn't speak to him since the lawsuit. 
Right. The last time I spoke to him was 2008. We did about 30 shows in Europe, a bunch of festivals, that's it. And we both live in the same town, too. The 2008 tour was, of course, a disaster, as you write in your book. You really, you just, that's when you completely just soured on him. You couldn't take it anymore, it sounds like. Yeah, man, I just, I just, you know, at this stage of the game, I just walked towards the light, not the dark, you know. And, and really, no money, no money is, is worth it to me for, for my peace of mind. It doesn't, it sounds like we're moving back to maybe not, uh, not so likely on, a, on the tour front, I guess. But you never know. I mean, it is, I mean, look, there are bands who said much worse things about each other and say it more regularly and still get back together. I don't think what we've said about each other is, is bad anyway. We just, it's yes. just disagreements. It's just disagreements. I will point out, Keith Richards said that Mick Jagger had a small penis and they were back on stage within two years. See, I don't mind. You can say I've got a little knob. I don't care. I'm not offended. <laughs> I'm co- it's, it's, it's all nonsense, man. It's whether you can, you can, if it doesn't make you feel like I feel. When I go on the road and play Sex Pistol songs, uh, like the last time... I'm just literally looking at my watch, thinking, when is this over? And now I shouldn't be doing it if that's where my head's at, you know? Yeah. Uh, and at the same time, it's, and it is the, you never know, really just break glass in case of bankruptcy, honestly, or is it more than that? I don't know. You just don't like to close the door at this point. Well, you, you just never know. It's not like I'm closing the door. You just yeah, yeah. never know. Yeah. Would he need to apologize for 2008? Is there something interpersonally that no, would have to happen? No, no. there's nothing. There's nothing. And, and it's, there's, there's nothing about that. You know, it's just disagreements. I've got thick skin when it comes to John and things that he says about me or the rest of the guys in the band. It don't mean nothing to me. Mm. You know, it, 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 I don't get my feelings hurt, whatever he says. It's just uh, life's too short, man. Life is too short. The portrayal of Sid's infamous girlfriend, Nancy, uh, felt very accurate, even maybe more. How would you compare it to, to how they did in the movie with her and with Sid? Which one was more accurate, which, which felt more like the real people you know? The Danny Boyle one, because it is one of them things where no one is really sure what happened, whether it was someone else who came in and did that or it was Sid. It's, it's just not clear. You know, and I don't, I, I don't think he did it. But again, I don't know. No one knows. Well, someone does if there was someone else involved. How did you, I've never seen a portrayal of her that really makes me understand why Sid became so obsessed and why it became what it was. Did you and do you have any understanding of what the hold was there? No, why I don't. he fell so hard? I don't know. She was very dark. It was very yeah. uh, a, a horrible energy that she brought around. And, and I realized that, not at the time, but looking back at it, I just, like, you just want to get away from her. And every, everyone felt that, it felt that way. You know, she was in New York, you know, all the, all the people around, and you can, they, they all say the same thing, they just didn't, like, who is this bird? Get, get her away, you know. But, you know, she's still a human being, and she was just doing the best she could, just like anyone else. In, in his book, and it was written a long time ago, and it was, before, it was before he even reunited with you guys, but Glenn says the Sex Pistols were a total failure uh, because, because they came and went so fast. What do you think? Well, I, you... I wouldn't call that a failure. 
um, it is what it is. You know, that failure still continues to this day. Does part of you think it's better that there only was the one album? It, it's, it, I would like to have done more just, just to see what the second album would have been like, you know, but it, it, it just didn't seem on the cards. When I walked away from San Francisco, I just, I just, you know, I, I just was not interested in it anymore. Uh, who knows? Who knows? You know, I like I like Pill's first album. You know, I like I like Public Image. That's a great. Yeah, some tune. Of, some of those songs could have been Sex Pistols songs. For sure, for sure. So it's it's hard to say. Yeah, I mean, it, at at least you did. On the other hand, there is there's the perfection of just the one album that it doesn't. There was no gradual decline. On the other hand, it was really not good for your finances. Yeah, one album. You know, Clash had like seven or eight albums. It always. It always helps down the road if you have a bigger catalogue. But I, I'm doing all right. When you look back and watch and watch the whole thing, did it change how you feel about the the whole story about this this period in your life that people like me will still want to ask you about all these years later? I really enjoyed it. It it was a great process, even though I wasn't in England when they were doing it. You know, I'd I'd do zooms with with uh with Danny and. Craig Pierce and I was involved from afar and it was exciting. Um, I just didn't want to go to England with the, 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 the COVID was rampant at that point and I, I just, uh, I, I actually attempted to go there and I had a, had a flight first class, had the, the VIP at LAX, this other little airport that you go to, and the lady came in to this room and said, okay, we're ready to board. And I just freaked out and just ran home. I just couldn't do it. I had a panic attack. But um, I went, now, now that, now that the, it's completed and it's out there, I, I just, my hat's off to Danny Boyle, man. He's, he's, he's a proper, proper director. Kudos to him. as hell. What else are you working on musically? What's going on with you? Well, I'm working on a new Sex Pistol album where I'm going to be singing. <laughs> That's a scoop. <laughs> yeah. No, I'm, uh, you know, I want to do my podcast. I, I would, I, what I'd really love is to get back on the radio. But where, you know, like, I don't know if, I don't know if you was aware of the first time I did radio is with Indy 1031. Yeah, great station, yeah. In Los Angeles, and it was a tiny little signal... But that was some of the best time for me. You know, it was just uh, where I could literally play whatever I wanted, whoever I wanted on guest, and it was successful. I would love to do that again, even even if it was, you know, an hour a day or maybe three to four days a week. I just don't know if that's on the cards these days because everything's so, you know... I don't want to... I don't like saying some stuff and then saying and here we are we're going to play blah 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 but you're not really playing it and then you come back in then you start talking again that's for right me, that is how they do it yeah yeah for me the greatness of it is when you play a song you're listening to that song people are listening to that song and then i get another idea what to play next or, or what i'm going to talk about it's, it's like a rolling train it just keeps going to do it any other way to me, it's not fun. It's just a job. 
I love learning how much you love Rod Stewart and the faces because people don't see the intersection between that and, and what became punk, but I, I guess it was there. There is, as far as, especially as, on, as far as tempos go, you know, it was, we, 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 Cookie, you know, it was all like our, our default uh, jamming. It would be a, pretty a straight beat, not, not too fast, you know, maybe a little bit. It was very, you know, a lot of people get confused with when they think of punk, they think of fast, trashy, you know, especially the later punk bands when they had the duck beats, you know what I mean? <laughs> yeah. That, that, is not, that is not us, you know. The Clash, again, had the same kind of tempos too. And finally, if I, if I, don't worry, I'm not going to, but if John Lydon joined this call right now, what would you say to him? Well, I, I would run. Again, that's not that's not sounding too good on a reunion, my friend. That, that's Listen, man, check out the ABBA things. Check out the ABBA. Yeah, and that's our show for today. Thanks so much to Steve Jones. Be sure to check out his podcast too, Jonesy's Jukebox, which is the evolution of his radio show. It's great and it's very much worth your time. But Rolling Stone Music Now will be back next week. We are, of course, a podcast. We're also on Sirius XM's Volume Channel One Hundred Six. Download us wherever you get your podcasts, subscribe to us, maybe leave us a nice review on Apple Podcasts because that's really appreciated. But as always, thanks for listening, and we will see you next week. Welcome to Talkville, the ultimate Smallville rewatch podcast. Guest star Sarah Carter as Alicia Baker. Although I didn't really work with her a lot. But Tom did, and they had some real big smoochy scenes. Yeah. Can we talk about that? Could there be any more sex? What was a three-page makeout scene that just kept going? Good Lord. We get it. They have chemistry. Jump in now or catch up on any of the past seasons of Talkville on YouTube or wherever you listen.